Greetings, everyone. This is Sound Health Radio Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is, of course, off working on the soundhealthportal.com, which I, I know I say this each week, but I'm going to keep saying it because it is true. The Sound Health Portal just keeps evolving. Uh, Sherry sees something or gets an idea, and it's an amazing resource online. Again, you can go there and go to the landing page at soundhealthportal.com. Scroll down, look at the current campaigns. I believe some of them are biodiet, neuroplasticity, or PTSD, as well as you can see Sherry's latest writings on the coronavirus, which we'll be talking about in this show quite a bit. You can go to that, to that page, to soundhealthportal.com, scroll down, and pick a campaign, meaning something that's available as a free trial, and sign up for an account. They don't spam you. They don't sell your information to anybody. And sign up for an account with your email. And it'll walk you through the process. Let's say you want to look at neuroplasticity, which is always one of my favorites, looking at how the brain's firing, what's going on, and what might be too much or too little, or perhaps hypoxic. That is a word we'll hear again. Not enough oxygen. And you'll be walked through doing two 45-second recordings and submitting those recordings right online now. You'll get an email with that report within two to 12 hours, is my experience, with just a boatload of information that you can sit down and read. And or if you have a healthcare practitioner that you think is open to that kind of information, you can take it to them and have them review it with you. It's an amazing resource. And to see Sherry do some workups with people online, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on In the News, and there's some demos there of her doing uh, sessions with people online in webinars where you can actually see the visuals of the Sound Health Portal, which for me is one of the more powerful things. The boatload of information along with now visual charts, which make understanding the information for me a little easier because it's a lot. I'm a big fan, soundhealthportal.com. And then for the replay of the show and all our shows, now if you go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab and then Sound Health Radio, you'll see this show with Dr. Harch at the top. And there'll be a replay link there that you can click that'll take you either back to the show notes and the replay of the show. And or now at the top of that page, we have links for... Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. Pocket Casts is my favorite for lots of reasons. And if you click on Pocket Casts, it'll open up the Pocket Casts link or icon. It'll take you to a page that'll show a list of the shows, the most recent shows. We're now, I think, careening over 800. You can look there. And one of the reasons I like Pocket Casts is because you can go and read the some of the notes there, listen to it, and it's cross-platform, meaning it'll work on Windows or Mac or Android or iOS. You'll be able to listen to it there and or share the information with your friends. And with some of the research and the breaking information that Dr. Harch has from a conference he attended yesterday, you can pass this information on to other people. And it's the kind of information people really are going to know about, particularly I know our audience is particularly interested in knowing about what's going on in the world of corona. I look forward to when we don't have to talk about corona anymore. It will be an amazing time. Not only that, but just everything that's about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. It's really quite extraordinary. With that, Dr. Harch is a world-renowned leading expert in hyperbaric medicine. Using his 30-plus years of HBOT experience, Dr. Harch administers the most scientifically based and precise treatment plans. He's responsible for the largest documented improvements in brain injury and neurological cases treating patients with HBOT. Beginning with brain injured divers and boxers in 1989, he applied his protocol to the first HBOT treated cerebral palsy and autistic children in this country, as well as multiple other cerebral disorders including most recently the first PET documented Alzheimer's case and a subacute drowned child. He wrote The Oxygen Revolution, a book explaining the science of HBOT and how it affects various neurological conditions. Dr. Harch has presented his clinical experience and research four times to the U.S. Congress and has been nominated for the NIH Director's Pioneer Award. 
He has a private HBOT practice and is director of the University Medical Center Hyperbaric Medicine Department and clinical professor of medicine section of emergency medicine at LSU School of Medicine in New Orleans. Dr. Harch joins us to discuss the oxygen revolution, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, third edition, breakthrough gene therapy for traumatic brain injury and disorders. Welcome, Dr. Harch. Thank you. Pleasure to be on, and happy Father's um, Day to you. Oh, yourself as well. And all of the fathers out there, happy Father's Day. Wear a mask. Whatever you're doing, just wear a mask. Why not? It's cheap. Yeah. It covers you up. And then make an appointment with Dr. Harch to have some HBOT. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> sure. I want to start. This is, I had the good fortune to have a, some conversation one time when I called the doctor's office and he picked up the phone and we talked. And I want to kind of go back to that that for a moment. Talk to us about your experience in talking in the ER with Dr. Richard Neubauer regarding hyperbaric oxygen and how, it, to me, that kind of seems like that was a tipping point in the direction of where you were going as a doctor. Well, it was. I mean, I had had some really life-changing experiences with hyperbaric oxygen in the year to year and a half before that, well, a year, actually, before that phone call with an acutely paralyzed man from a car accident who uh, we were able to have walk out of the hospital 17 days later after delivering him hyperbaric oxygen that first night um, and, you know, some other patients. But this one was a kind of desperate, dire situation, and it was a commercial diver who uh, had decompression sickness of the brain and other areas in his body, had undergone standard hyperbaric treatment. We treated him months before, and he was still left with residual injury, so much so that he was considered demented. And uh, the last straw, the diving company, after 23 years of employment, declared him a malingerer and faker and cut off his workers' comp. He was bankrupt. His family was disintegrating, and he decided that it was time to end things. So he loaded his 357 and 44 Magnum pistols and was heading down to the diving company in New Orleans to settle up and uh, called his brother to say goodbye, who brought in their attorneys, and they drove him down the interstate and literally dumped him in the emergency room where I was because I was the last one who had treated him. And they said, you know, uh, he's yours. I said, what do you want me to do with him? There's, There's no treatment for this at this point. And they said, well, you figure it out. You know, you're the doctor, and you treated him last. And so I got on the phone, and I started, you know, calling up people. And uh, I was told uh, that there was no treatment for this man, but I might give Dr. Richard Neubauer a call in South Florida. And I had heard of him, but I really didn't know much about him, and I was warned to not be too chummy and or establish much of a relationship because it would adversely affect my career in hyperbaric medicine because he was, uh, yes, a a figure that had been disparaged and and criticized and so on, which is another whole story. And so I hung up the phone with that doctor who had counseled me and immediately called Dr. Neubauer (laughs) because... (laughs) Like, here's this guy who's about to kill. He. There were nine people on that floor at the McDermott Diving Company involved with his accident. And, of course, he had 12 bullets. Uh, and so this was a very desperate situation, and, and there's no treatment for him. But here's some man, a doctor who had a possible treatment for untreatable neurological disease. Uh, and I'm not going to call him up because... Uh, it's risky to my career. I, and anyways, I just call, I immediately called him up, and we had this this uh, career-changing conversation. And he hadn't treated a diver, but I, I asked him, well, you know, do you have any suggestions? And he said, you can try what I've done with stroke and multiple sclerosis patients, but you need 200 treatments. And I said, oh, my God. I said, that's a quarter of a million dollars in hospital charging no one. The, the insurance company, we, we won't be able to get it done. What's the minimum number to see a permanent measurable improvement? And he said, well, why don't you try 40? 
and it sounded kind of flippant the way he described it, but it was after 12 years of giving people up to hundreds of treatments versus a week of treatment, and there was something about that number where people seemed to retain benefit. And so I started treating this patient, and lo and behold, it turned his life around. Um, and that turned my life around as well. <laughs> and wow. that was the conversation. Yeah. And I, I had the, uh, when you and I had talked, I, I didn't know that he was your mentor. And I had the privilege yeah. of interviewing Dr. Neubauer when I did terrestrial radio in the early 2000s, when his book came out, Hyperbaric Oxygen Therapy. So I was I I had already I had never I had received HBOT, but that's because I was lucky enough to have, have somebody that was experimenting with HBOT, and I was I just received it as oh want to try this and it was like you know I thought it was great I I didn't have a malady, but I was so impressed with the overall innervation of just having oxygen, um, and right. and I was a fan of Newbar's work to begin with, and so then when I found your book and then saw that I was like wow. That's only 20 years ago, almost. Uh, so that's a that's a it's a great story. And what was just for a little bit of history? And it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So Dr. Neubauer didn't invent HBOT. What was the first usage of HBOT? Well, the first usage in HBOT really is under the broader category of hyperbaric therapy, which includes, you know, even compressed air. And the very first use of that was in 1662 in England. Oxygen wasn't added to hyperbaric therapy until really the, the late 30s when the Navy started experimenting, if you will, with adding oxygen to their recompression tra tables to treat decompression sickness. And then in the 50s, when the Dutch began uh, using it for human maladies of maximum ox oxygen lack, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, or, mm. uh, you know, the flesh-eating bacteria, the infections that thrive in a no-oxygen environment, um, and for use in surgery, like blue baby operations, where you need to oxygenate the, the patient before you stop the heart and, and you know, so like crazy to, to fix the heart problem. So uh, it began back in 1662, but the introduction of oxygen, uh, not till, you know, the last century. And, and the thing about the, the use of compressed air or uh, mixtures of other gases is that when you compress air, you increase the pressure of the oxygen as well. So you are getting increased oxygen along with the effect of increased pressure which no one has appreciated is really almost equally bioactive to the oxygen. Uh, and that understanding has just come about in the last 10 years. We could talk about that. <laughs> and, and, what, and so there's a whole other show. We're, we've got a stack of shows yeah. coming up. I can just feel it in the air. So how is receiving HBOT different than just putting a cannula in my nose and breathing in oxygen? The pressure. And that goes to the, the story I was just telling you, you know, is another whole story, is right. that in, in the entire history, modern history of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, where it was defined as use of 100% oxygen at increased pressure, no one in any scientific meeting, in any publication, nothing that I had ever seen in this entire field had ever raised the concept that the increase in pressure itself could be bioactive until I applied to the FDA in mm. 2011 to get a special exemption for the study on traumatic brain injury that we just published three months ago the randomized trial on chronic traumatic brain injury. And I asked them to give me a special protocol approval that should my study hit pay dirt and be positive, they would give me a new FDA indication clearance for hyperbaric oxygen in chronic traumatic brain injury. And they looked at my application and they said, uh, no, 
you're asking us <laughs> to give you an approval for just a single dose, an atmosphere and a half of oxygen. And this now, in the 50 years prior to that of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, it had always been under the devices side of the FDA. But now, as of 1999, they had an internal memo, and they said, wait a minute, oxygen is a medical gas. It's a drug. They switched it over to the drug side, and nobody had applied to the FDA for an IND, Investigational New Drug Exemption, to do an experiment with hyperbaric oxygen as a, quote, drug. So here I was applying, and they said, wait a minute, we, this is the first time we've looked at hyperbaric therapy, but you know, doctor, you're, you're doing two things here. We view your therapy as a combination therapy of increased oxygen and increased pressure. You stick people in a, a chamber, close the door, increase the pressure and increase the oxygen. Well, you know, both, neither one, the other could be bioactive. We have no idea. You need to figure that out and do a whole bunch of experiments with both pressure and different oxygen doses. And I thought, these guys are crazy. This is what people complain about the FDA, you know, being difficult to deal with or whatever. But no, they were right. And, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough go to the library. I went to the medical <laughs> library and here was 50 years of physiological experiments done by PhDs that the MDs never read, showing that, in fact, pressure alone is bioactive. And so what we're doing now, it, we're in the infancy after 358 years of learning how to dose hyperbaric oxygen. And it's based on the differences in pressure and oxygen that you're delivering to the person. And that is where we are now with pressure. So the difference, getting back to your question, what's the difference between just putting on a little nasal cannula oxygen? There is an effect of that, but you have to do it intermittently. If you just leave it on eight or 10 hours, you do not get the effects, drug-like effects, if you will, that you do when you intermittently administer it, which is the secret behind what I'm doing with all these drowned children now in the hospital. We did, you give it intermittently, so you expose and withdraw. That acts as a signal to our tissue, our body, et cetera, cells, our genes, to have activity. But there are only so many genes that are affected by just oxygen alone. When you add pressure to it, it is phenomenal, the numbers of genes that you affect. And that's the difference between hyperbaric oxygen and just nasal cannula oxygen. And that's a whole show. Uh, I have to keep moving forward. That's a whole show right there. Um, how, why is oxygen a drug? Or defined as a drug? It, it, it is not a drug when we're breathing our regular normal amounts, just breathing atmospheric oxygen. But when you elevate it to an increased level that we are not created or evolved to, to use, utilize, and then withdraw it. It's a stimulus. You get an increased amount, then you withdraw it. And that is like taking an oxygen pill or an oxygen and pressure pill. And it has drug-like effects. It manipula manipulates our body. But it's a drug unlike almost any other drug known to man in that it's prime, one, among the many, many things it does, you know, uh, relieving low oxygen level, but it activates over 40% or suppresses, either turns on or turns off over 40% of all of the protein coding genes in our DNA some 8,101 of our 19,000 genes. And that is how it is so different from all the other, almost all the other drugs we have. And unlike hormone receptor sites, which are the cells need to have a reception site to receive that hormone, our bodies are receptive in every location to oxygen. That, that should be in the form of a question, but I couldn't quite get it. <laughs> Yes, you're exactly right. Wow. I mean, from, all the way to the nucleus. And that's also where pressure is having its effect as well. 
hydrostatic pressure is instantaneously, you go in a pressure environment, the second pressure is changed, it is felt equally throughout all body parts. But it, it goes right to the nucleus of every cell. And through that effect of pressure, and it's unclear exactly how that gets transmitted, could be through vibration, it could be a number of ways, but it, it activates the nucleus and our DNA. And that has been part of the big unknown about hyperbaric therapy for 358 years, well, along with the gene activation of oxygen. Nobody's been able to understand it and explain it. And as a result, the medical profession couldn't, they can't explain their own therapy. And it's, it's part of the reason why it got discredited unfairly. Yet, interestingly, that doesn't stop the FDA. If you look at half of the drugs that the FDA has approved for use, roughly half, and the most common sentence that's in the physician's desk reference, which is the compendium advertising the sale of all of our prescription drugs, the most common sentence is unknown, or the mechanism of action is unknown. And it doesn't matter. You can still have it. All that matters is whether it works or not. So, you know, all these years, we haven't understood the mechanism of action of hyperbaric oxygen, really. Now we do, but we've known the benefits. Wow. And now it'll be informed. And I, I, I want to get to the big conversation, but I, I can't help myself. But is it, what is it, what are you, in, in your 30 years, except for when you go out in the garage and kick a box around and swear from, from the resistance of Western medicine to the HBOT, the idea of HBOT, is it, is it a combination of ignorance or, well, I think that's without saying, uh, that's my opinion. Uh, and, or yes. does HBOT need a lobbying group of its own or would things change more rapidly if there was a pharmaceutical company involved? Oh, undoubtedly. If this was patentable and there was big money behind it, uh, this would be everywhere tomorrow, yesterday. Um, and the reason is a combination of things. Ignorance is number one in the medical profession. Um, you know, doctors, uh, before they will recommend something to their patient, they want to know how it works. They want to understand that drug. The patient doesn't care, though. I, I, I always use the example. What man with erectile dysfunction refuses a prescription of Viagra because, <laughs> Doc, i got to know the mechanism of action first. There's no yeah, such boy. thing. People don't care. But doctors do. And so if doctors don't understand it, they're very hesitant to make a recommendation about a therapy, and they're even afraid somewhat because if they recommend something and something goes bad, uh, they're potentially or feel they're potentially liable for that. Um, but what happened to hyperbaric medicine is in this vacuum of being unable to explain their own therapy, Claims were made over the years about that, and one of them was erectile dysfunction. For instance, in diabetic men who were treated for diabetic foot wounds with hyperbaric oxygen had healing of their foot wounds. Well, it also affected the nerves that had been affected by either vascular disease or just the high glucose levels interfering with nerve conduction, but the nerves that controlled electrile, uh, erectile function. And when they stood up and said, wow, yeah, my foot healed, but guess what? I'm, uh, I'm also working again. My nature's back. You know, people stood up, and the doctors, this is outrageous. How could that work? And it was viewed as a ridiculous, outlandish claim. And, of course, hyperbaric physicians were loath to defend it because they couldn't explain it either. And so what happened is uh, it, it began to get discredited as more and more quote, unsubstantiated claims were made. But curiously, what also happened was in the late 70s, at least in the United States, in the late 70s, my mentor, Dr. one of my mentors, Dr. Richard Neubauer, um, was treating some 
uh, multiple sclerosis patients who had foot infections, bone infections. And that was a, a reimbursed indication for hyperbaric oxygen. But those two patients also had multiple sclerosis. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, their multiple sclerosis improved. And he, he was just amazed. It was, and it was like, well, wait a minute. We've got a wound in the foot here and multiple sclerosis, which is multiple scars. These are multiple wounds in the brain. It also helped. Wait a minute here. We've got a common therapy here for wounds. He reported it in the Florida Medical Journal, and you would have thought he screamed fire in a fireworks factory. There was just panic, and the hyperbaric medicine field was fighting for credibility. And one of the ways you get that done is getting it reimbursed in the hospital setting by Medicare, Medicaid, insurance companies, and so on. And that's what was occurring. And here he was now standing up and saying that we could treat chronic neurological disease. Well, that was anathema because it was well known there was nothing you could do for chronic neurological disease. So here now, in a specialty fighting for credibility, you are essentially taking on the whole neurological specialty. And what happened is the hyperbaric field and the medical society just went all in against Dr. Neubauer. And it just destroyed his credibility, reputation, despite he was probably one of the most published people in all of hyperbaric medicine. And the principles and the things he published have not been refuted. But it got disparaged and it got politicized. And this was despite the MS Society funding the most rigorous hyperbaric study on hyperbaric oxygen and multiple sclerosis ever performed, done at NYU Medical School and published in the New England Journal in 1983, I believe it was, 83 or 85, and it was positive. Hyperbaric oxygen randomized trial showed it worked for these patients. And despite that, you know, there was just this backlash of criticism and so on. And it has been part of the reason this field has been suppressed, especially for neurological applications. And the final point I would make is that it is not taught in medical schools. So as I mentioned in my book, about six years ago, one of our fellows, Dr. Sarah Parks, did as a research project for the fellowship, a survey of all American medical schools and their curriculum. And she found that 75% of them teach nothing about hyperbaric medicine or diving medicine. And the other 25%, it's maybe one lecture or a part of a lecture. So essentially, we've got a generation of doctors who know nothing about hyperbaric medicine, at least from medical school, have been taught nothing, and who have been very polarized due to this misinformation, misunderstanding, and, and uh, <laughs> you know, this political climate in medicine regarding uh, the ignorance over hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So there, this is my opinion, they actually know less about HBOT than they do about nutrition, which is a shocking uh, concept. True, and they know less about HBOT than most of your listeners will know when we're done with this hour. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so your original statement about ignorance is, in fact, correct. Wow. And, and furthermore, if you go to what finally my publisher allowed me to write, it was one of the conditions of my, the, the third uh, revision, uh, third edition of my book, was that they would not edit one word of what I wrote. And what I put in the forward to the book was what I was taught at Johns Hopkins in my third year of medical school when I, was, I had my basic medicine clerkship. Uh, and this was by my junior resident, who was our main, you know, the main instructor for the medical students. Uh, of course, you had more senior people and all, but he's the one that you rounded with, you saw the patients with, et cetera. And, and uh, uh, he, we heard a group of doctors outside of room uh, discussing one of the patients inside the room and and uh, one of them said, well, how about hyperbaric oxygen for this patient? And, you know, as a third-year medical student, you know 
so little clinical medicine, you don't dare pipe up you know, in front of people. You know, I waited until we were down the hall, and privately I asked him, I go, what's hyperbaric oxygen? He said, oh. He goes, don't put it out of your mind. Don't ask another question about it. It is completely unscientific, been thoroughly disproven. Fraud, charlatanism, and snake oil sales. Don't give it another thought. Wow. And I tucked that in my head until eight years later. I was down here in New Orleans, and now in a emergency medicine group where we were the Gulf of Mexico and South Central United States Referral Center for Hyperbaric Medicine. And I had the option of going and learning about hyperbaric oxygen and undersea medicine, diving medicine. And I, I went to the government National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration course for physicians on this. And here was all this science, published science, and then went to additional courses and saw this. And it was like, where is the disconnect here between the medical school dogma I was given, taught, and the reality of what had been published? And so began a, a, a story of self-education, uh, patient experience, and so on, until these really dramatic cases just completely changed my life and career. That's amazing. And one of the, one of the things, there's so much more there, uh, but one of the things in your book that I hadn't put the parts together about was how does oxygen deprivation lead to inflammation? Uh, well, it's just part of our normal body processes. When you have hypoxia, you set in motion a whole series of biochemical events. One of them, in particular, is that our white blood cells are now activated because usually hypoxia is the basis of so many injuries. So if somebody punches you in the arm right now or you fall down and and hurt yourself. At the site of injury, you have initial tissue damage, which starts the whole inflammatory reaction. But part of that inflammatory reaction is you're going to have breakage of blood vessels or leakiness. The fluid, the liquid in the blood leaks out of our blood vessels and causes swelling. When that happens, it compresses all of the, the microvasculature, the tiny blood vessels in the area, blood flow and oxygen drops. And what you do is further activate the immune system and inflammatory reaction. Part of that, a big part of it, are our white blood cells, which rush to the rescue, leak out of the blood vessels, and start trying to repair. Well, those blood, you know, white blood cells, while they are reparative and, and part of our body's response to clean up damage and so on, they do a hell of a lot of damage. And what happens is those white blood cells are activated by hypoxia anywhere in the body where there is hypoxia. And that produces chronic inflammation. Well, it's been shown now in innumerable animal models and even in human, uh, some human studies that a single hyperbaric treatment within about 90 minutes of the acute event, but even a little farther, well, mostly 90 minutes, completely inactivates those white blood cells for 23 mm. hours, such that wow. it is the basis of the acute Emergent use of hyperbaric oxygen for one of our signature diagnoses, decompression sickness. And that's one of the kind of discoveries that I, I had made or at least had put in writing back in 1991 and two when I got into this, uh, well, at least into the academic side of the hyperbaric medicine field. But it, it is true for resuscitation, after cardiac arrest, for instance, for birth injury, for uh, so many uh, acute injuries that underlying immediate injury and inflammatory reaction is almost completely quelled by a single high-pressure hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Is it ever too late to apply uh, HBOT, though? No. No, and that was really the the finding of Dr. Neubauer's work and, and mine. 
And what I had done was first apply this to divers. So remember this story I told early on about that commercial diver who's now declared demented. He had the acute treatment, but it, it was only partially successful. And so he was retreated roughly uh, when we finally got him in the chamber was uh, five months after his last hyperbaric treatment and seven months after his accident. Well, what happened was it spawned, the awakening there was that we could treat chronic neurological injury, as had Dr. Neubauer. And here in the signature diagnosis of this field of hyperbaric medicine, diving disease, and it, it just begged the question, well, wait a minute, what's the difference between the chronic injury from bubbles passing through your blood vessels in your brain or body and, let's say, an old stroke? or an old traumatic brain injury, or an old anything. And really, there is no difference. There are differences at the acute time of injury between, let's say, a stroke and a trauma or or something. But later on, after that inflammatory reaction, you're treating similar pathology. And that's what we then started investigating and did it with the first one was a retired professional boxer, ex-world champion 23 years after his last bout. So my work then subsequently became the application of this to every chronic neurological disorder that presented to me that got referred or or patients who called and investigated that and looked at the the longest now. So all that work is on chronic injury or, or the majority of it. And, and now we have treated, I think the longest patient is 50 years after uh, traumatic brain injury and shown wow. benefit. Wow. All right. This could go a whole other direction, but we're going to pause or sort of step sideways, and we're going to talk about the amazing event you attended yesterday, and then we're going to talk about the coronavirus because of yes. the application of HBOT to coronavirus patients and the research you had posted and that you on this event you were a part of yesterday confirmed a lot of the research that you had already posted. So please talk to us about the benefits of HBOT, your confirmation, that whole arena. My pleasure. Um, This began with my research associate, um, uh, nurse, hyperbaric nurse, private duty nurse, um, brilliant woman, confidant, and wife, uh, <laughs> Juliet, who who began discussions with me in January of this year about what did I think about application of hyperbaric oxygen to coronavirus patients. And my immediate response to her was, uh, of course. I said... You know, history bears remembering the very first patient treated in the United States with hyperbaric therapy was a dying Spanish flu patient in 1918 in Kansas City that Dr. Orville Cunningham at the University of Kansas City School of Medicine uh, began his whole entry into hyperbaric medicine in the midst of the Spanish flu pandemic. And before he could... he construct his chamber to start potentially treating, but first in animals, looking at animal experiments and so on. Before he could do one animal experiment, the day that chamber was up and running, a colleague brought him a dying uh, Spanish flu patient who was blue. It's described in books and journal articles, moribund, uh, almost taking his last breath. And they put him in the chamber and revived this guy with just a one-hour treatment of compressed air. And they gave him a series of four or five treatments over the next four or five days and saved this guy. Soon, it was followed by another, another, and another patient. And that is the, the history of what spawned the, for him, explosion in his, what became his practice. And the building of these big chambers, the Steel Ball Hospital Chamber in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, et cetera. But the point was that the pathology in the lungs of Spanish flu 
patients is nearly identical to the pathology in the lungs of coronavirus patients. I mean, they die really the same way. And so my answer to Juliet was, uh, of course, you know, this was the Spanish flu pandemic and it was applied then. And it should work if we were to do it now. And she said, well, she kept bugging me. Why don't you, you know, write something about this? So finally, in early March, I posted a, a short little essay on my website that history bears remembering that we, you know, the history of hyperbaric medicine, uh, application of Spanish flu, and that very likely we should be able to do this to coronavirus patients, and it should have an impact. Um, within 24 hours, she found an article that had circulated pretty much in limited fashion in China. It was uh, an article that was the summation of five cases that Dr. Uh, Zhao Ling Zong um, and uh, oh, Dr. Chen had treated in Wuhan, China. And they had written this manuscript, were about to submit it to a journal, and one of their colleagues released it on the Internet, pre-publication. And Juliet found this article, and lo and behold, it confirmed exactly what the Spanish flu situation was, but they had no idea about the application of this Spanish flu patients. Uh, they had just decided to give this a try because the patients are dying of oxygen lack. What is the ultimate way to give more oxygen when you're failing with standard oxygen delivery methods? It's to deliver it with hyperbaric oxygen. And what it does is it, it uses the same principles upon which our lungs oxygenate and, which, and by which we use increased oxygen. But you're able to extend this even farther because you can now go above atmospheric pressure limits, meaning ambient pressure and deliver increased pressure of oxygen that effectively penetrates the inflammation in the lungs. And so uh, I immediately got in touch with these doctors and so began weeks of intensive discussions and exchange with them about what they had done. And uh, I then posted additional material and we set about trying to do you know, announced this, that, you know, this should be looked at. People ought to do it. Look what the Chinese did. And I finally published a commentary in an American medical journal. Actually, it's, it's based in Beijing, China, but, you know, an English-language journal to, to show their work and what they had done and argue for the use of this. And simultaneously, some other people found this information as well as found the original, you know, Chinese article. And... Uh, people started doing this. Uh, we tried as quickly as possible to get a study approved. So I tried to convert our clinic and, uh, to a coronavirus treatment center, but realized we, you know, it would have, uh, we would have had to have ambulance transport of hospital patients there, and it just was impossible to get done. So we tried to do it in the hospital, and the hospital refused to allow it, even under an experimental protocol. So what has happened now is there are, oh, boy, I would say close to 20 or more centers around the world that are in the process of treating or getting ready to treat coronavirus patients with hyperbaric oxygen. Uh, and the last month, the American College of Hyperbaric Medicine had a webinar on this. And so what I had subsequently done to, after putting this out on the website was post all of the information that the Chinese the physicians uh, gave me to put on the website and help them disseminate, uh, including English translations, and then put a series of YouTube videos out explaining the science of this, uh, you know, and making some announcements about it, and then did the same through this webinar the American College of Hyperbaric Medicine put out last month. And so yesterday, the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society had a webinar where they invited the physicians who have been doing this treatment, as well as some other experts on you know, what's going on in the lungs and so on. And now there's a case experience of at least 31 patients who have been treated. And the preliminary evidence is showing exactly what happened with the Spanish flu and what I, I had, you know, tried to uh, propose and, 
and project that we would be able to prevent the, Spanish, the uh, coronavirus patients from going on a ventilator, from dying, et cetera. And that's what the preliminary evidence is, is suggesting. So uh, there's going to be more data coming out. There are more studies underway. Uh, and who knows, this may finally be hyperbaric medicine's day in the sun uh, to show this and now elucidate the science, which has been there for 358 years. Well, actually, forever. <laughs> but, you know, has been lesser known for this period of time. Only 358 years? Is that well, all? No, <laughs> That's I mean, amazing. Let's face it, this is yeah. God-given or, you know, evolutionarily developed that we are all organisms are sensitive to changes in atmospheric pressure and atmospheric oxygen levels. Uh, in fact, the Nobel Prize, what, last year, the year before, last year it was awarded for the work on uh, what the effects of low oxygen do and the signaling that this, uh, you know, launches with uh, all of our genes that get activated and so on. But they didn't talk about what happens when you increase, increase the oxygen and increase pressure. But we now know that, and there are more studies that have been published on this. I mean, you can ask any arthritic patient uh, in, let's say, New Orleans. They can tell you when a weather front is at the Texas-Louisiana mm -hmm. border. You mm -hmm. know, the decrease in atmospheric pressure uh, that accompanies fronts is felt by arthritic patients. And our body is full of pressure receptors. So all organisms, it turns out, are sensitive and can respond to changes in pressure and oxygenation. And that's mm -hmm. essentially what we are taking advantage of with hyperbaric therapy. Wow. <clears throat> and I, I, I have to toss in a question about your, your opinion on soft-sided tanks, because I see a trend with people. So the tanks that you're talking about are hard-shelled well, actually, let me back this up to asking what an atmosphere is, because I'm not sure people understand what that even means. An atmosphere of pressure is the weight of all of the gas from wherever you are right now up to the beyond the stratosphere, right, out in space where there is no gas. So it, it is the weight of all of that air going up to the limits of where there is no air. And the weight of all of that air, which is God knows how many miles, you know, 25 miles or more, uh, is 14.7 pounds of pressure per square inch. And that's what it is at sea level. And that's called one atmosphere pressure absolute. In outer space, pressure is zero. There is no gas except around, you know, stars, planets, etc. cetera. Um, every increased atmospheric pressure uh, is equivalent to going below sea level, 33 feet of seawater. So if you dive down the ocean and are at 33 feet under sea, the weight of water from where you are up to the surface is... 14.7 pounds per square inch. From the surface all the way up to the end of the stratosphere is another 14.7 pounds per square inch. So, you know, it's commonly talked about pressures in terms of atmospheres absolute. So the, the soft chambers and the hard chambers are really no different except to the limits that they can go to. <clears throat> and that's determined by the materials... Uh, that they're constructed with. So the soft chambers, most of them, uh, the FDA only, uh, well, I take it back, they've changed things, but most of them only go to 1.3 atmospheres of pressure. So just 0.3 atmospheres or 10 feet of seawater equivalent above sea level pressure. Uh, the hard shell chambers, typical ones that you walk into a hospital and get into, go to three atmospheres of pressure. So roughly 10 times uh, the absolute pressure. 
for you know roughly about seven times the the difference uh, between atmospheric sea level pressure and the limit of the chamber. And then the the bigger chambers, you know, the ones you walk in, those depending on how they're constructed. Like we have one here that goes to uh, in our the research lab of uh, our group and one of my partners uh, goes to. 1,500 feet of seawater. So very, very high pressures. It's got a four-inch steel thickness to its hull. So anyways, the mild chambers just go to part of that pressure range. And, you know, as I didn't elaborate, you know, there's bioactivity. Well, I I did. I said earlier, we all living organisms are sensitive to pressure changes along this whole spectrum. So just from the very slight increase in pressure, uh, that you can achieve in a portable chamber all the way up to the limits and beyond of the hard shell chambers. So there's some benefit to using a soft-sided chamber. Yes. And once again, it it goes to that question of Hmm. dosing of the the different pressures of oxygen and, and hydrostatic pressure. And and how that acts on your pathology. Right. So, if you have a particular condition with particular underlying problems, disease processes, a certain dose may not work as well as another dose. And so, if you look at the history of hyperbaric medicine, uh, at least in the United States, but pretty much worldwide, uh, the vast majority of the research that has been done has been done way above the pressure limits of the portable chambers. And the science has been built on that. And it's partly because of how this all evolved, which was, as I mentioned earlier in the Netherlands, applying maximum amounts of oxygen and pressure to people dying of conditions of oxygen lack. And in the Navy, where prior to oxygen use, the treatment for decompression sickness was to return the diver to the pressure level of water that they were in. So if you were down 100 feet underwater doing your diving work and came up and you had decompression sickness, you went in a chamber and they repressurized that chamber to the equivalent 100 feet of seawater pressure and then beyond with air. And then they brought you out slowly. So when they uh, started to think about using oxygen, it was a matter of how much oxygen can we safely give people, these divers in these chambers, without killing them? And see, the experiments had been done in the late 1800s that giving just pure oxygen to a canary, they dropped dead in five, seven minutes. Uh, and so, you know, there was this fear, well, we don't know how much we can give. So the U.S. Navy began a whole series of experiments on young, healthy Navy volunteers um, <laughs> and uh, found out what the limits were of oxygen tolerance. And so then they introduced oxygen at the deepest possible levels, which was generally 2.8 atmospheres of pure oxygen, or three atmospheres, which was interestingly the same amount the Dutch were using to treat those those, uh, uh, severe conditions of oxygen lack. So that, the history of hyperbaric medicine, and it wasn't until the Germans and then finally Dr. Neubauer, you know, realized, hey, the the lower doses, in fact, may be better for treating chronic brain injury or, you know, delayed treatment. And since then, there's even been lower pressures to the portable chambers to investigate that application. So the summing it up, the only difference between the chambers is how deep, how much pressure you can give and how much oxygen in the portable chambers versus the hard shell ones, um, and somewhat the conditions that you then are responsive to it. And, of course, I was going to say it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, that if you're in a soft chamber, you have to be also, you're under pressure and you, you need to be supplied with actual O2, pure O2, medical-grade oxygen, because I've seen people go into pressurized chambers thinking that being pressurized with ambient oxygen is like, yes, which seems like, okay. Well, you mean with pressurized air? No, no, in fact, fact, as I mentioned earlier, when you pressurize air, you increase the pressure of all the gases in the air. 
which means that the pressure of oxygen goes up as well as the pressure of nitrogen. Uh, the 1% of argon in our air also goes up. Uh, and so the, that's what has been the root of so much controversy in hyperbaric medicine, is that there has now been shown to have benefit with even compressed air when used properly. And, uh, for instance, in cerebral palsy and in other conditions, even in traumatic brain injury. And it's the lack of understanding of that that has been at the root of the, the failure to accept the research studies that have shown benefit, like the Department of Defense studies on traumatic brain injury that were done on the heels of the, the studies and treatments we had done down here. And... I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get is, is should I go out and lay in a soft-sided tank tomorrow and receive benefit? I'm not trying to treat anything directly, but I don't mind the idea of having a little bit more oxygen in my tissue, maybe benefiting my neurological system, perhaps slowing down degradation of my telomerase, but that's a whole other show. Um, you know, that. Is there hazard of using soft chambers or do you ha you really want to be guided by somebody who knows what they're doing that's sort of where well, I'm I, yeah there there are some hazards and it's uh but in and it's more due to the pressure changes but in general no there's not it's a fairly safe uh, treatment but the question it begs the question what are you treating um and it's unclear uh, that, for instance, someone like yourself, and I'm just going to assume, let's say you're in good health and you want wellness and longevity and all of that, unclear that just compressed air is going to benefit you. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, compressed air, as you go deeper, uh, has its limits in terms of time and depth. Uh, before you are at risk for decompression sickness. Um, at the 1.3 atmosphere chambers, that's not so much a risk. But, uh, you know, it depends on what you're treating. And that's where you get into the whole dose of hyperbaric oxygen and trying to find a dose that your pathology is responsive to. Because hmm. some people, I, I, you know, over a third uh, of the portable chambers... Uh, are are discontinued, resold, not used after uh, a year. And this is, it's probably an underestimate of the figure, but this is from one of the manufacturers. Uh, and, you know, they don't keep as good a control or uh, tabs of them, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of, of trying to dose things to your condition. And could that also be the result of people not having the patience to see long-term beneficial effect? Yes, it is. Okay. Because somewhat uh, that dosing, you have to, I mean, there is, there can be, there generally is, with pure oxygen, a, a big wow effect that occurs much earlier than, uh, let's say, just compressed air treatment. I mean, the, uh, the oxygen is, is very bioactive. Uh, hmm. And so, uh, in fact, we have this problem sometimes with patients who, if they get uh, a good oxygen treatment as their first treatment and have that effect, they expect that on the subsequent 39 treatments or beyond. And <laughs> it just doesn't happen like that. Right. Oftentimes, that very first one has a, a really... A profound effect that um, is hard to duplicate. It's like, I, I well, <laughs> uh, I was going to liken it. You know, you've heard people talk uh, with addiction and all about the first time the use of, uh, you know, very psychoactive drugs and the intense high, uh, and then they're forever chasing it there, thereafter uh, with repetitive use, and they don't achieve that. And sometimes with hyperbaric oxygen, that very first treatment is is quite dramatic, um, but it is doing something different than what is subsequently happening with repetitive treatments. And with high-dosing repetitive treatments, you can get to overdosing. 
so it's a matter of, it's like it gets back to uh, any prescription drug. It's a matter of managing dose. Uh, you know, like if you had high blood pressure and taking a medication, um, although this this drug has more profound effects. <laughs> and on that note, I'm surprised to say that we're going to be doing definitely a part two or a series <laughs> because this is such a it's such a powerful ally. I mean, I've been a fan since I interviewed Dr. Neubauer, and you've just increased my desire to people for people to know about HBOT. I, I think the from my view, from outside as a non-professional, is the having access and being allowed to receive HBOT. That's, that seems to be currently what I would call the lumpy part, is finding a practitioner and receiving right. it. And that is the problem because there's no, there's very little training. You know, doctors go to a 40-hour course or they just put chambers in their office and away they go. Uh, and we're now finding that, while this seems so stupidly simple, that really trying to do this right and dose it to you um, is more complicated. And uh, that ultimately it is a prescription medical device and drug. And you want to do this properly and you want to do it in a way where it can benefit people uh, maximally. But it was also the reason why I wrote my book. It was to mm -hmm. encourage people. The, the real root of the book is in the later chapter, I think chapter 11, where I, I go over the evidence for this in acute severe traumatic brain injury. And it is unequivocal. You can reduce the death rate in acute severe traumatic brain injury by 50 to 60%. And I believe that's a figure greater than even penicillin when penicillin came out. There is no other therapy like this and its effect. Uh, and so what I, I say is that essentially, you know, we can't trust the medical profession at the institutional level to do what's best for us. You have to go out and, and find therapies and, and medical care, the best for you. And that's why I wrote this book, and that was the message. Go out and get this therapy, and, and hopefully this was going to generate the oxygen revolution, the appreciation of uh, increasing amounts of oxygen intermittently to solve many medical problems. Yes. So many shows, so many questions, but we have to stop now. I'm sad to say, uh, where can, where would you like people to find out more information about your research? I put, put it in the show notes, but for the listening part of the audience, would you give us your contact information and where people can find out more about you? The, the best place is just go to the website, hbot.com. Pretty simple. Uh, and uh, office number is 504-309-4948. And there's a wealth of information there. And uh, most of my studies, you can, you know, the Googling me is also an easy way Uh because you'll find a lot. There are a lot of interviews and uh, published papers. I have gone to almost exclusive publishing in medical journals that have online access uh, and especially free access to the public. So you can find the coronavirus one. You'll find the Alzheimer's case report, uh, which was one of many patients I've treated with Alzheimer's, uh, the traumatic brain injury study, randomized trial that just got published and the veteran study. And then there's one article from 2015 that everybody should read, and it's called Hyperbaric Oxygen and Chronic Traumatic Brain Injury, Oxygen Pressure and Gene Therapy. And in that little commentary, I talk about all of these gene effects. And it, it's in a way that the lay public, uh, every person should be able to understand. I mean, it's not all it's not technical doctor jargon. Um, and uh, it was really meant for people. It's really, it's great information. I, I And my really, book, The Oxygen Revolution. Book. I was just about to say that really people should go out and get The Oxygen Revolution 3rd Edition. It's also available as a Kindle book. Um, yes. And I just, it's, it's just 
filled with great information. And everybody here that I know that's listening should be telling two friends, et cetera, et cetera, because it's such a powerful, positive protocol. Uh, and it's just our, our bailiwick of, you know, let's be healthier. What a shocking idea. Yeah. And, and there's a whole other, the next time we talk, we'll talk more about COVID because that arena of getting people off of ventilators or preventing them from being even on ventilators seems like a huge positive step. If, you, if we can just get the interface yeah. of your federal, federal fellow medical associates who are like, what? Uh, to get on board yes. with all of this. Well, one of the Chinese publications was on a patient on a ventilator. Once you're on a ventilator, mortality rate is extremely high. Right. And they were able to get this patient off a ventilator with, I think it was, four treatments. Amazing. With that, okay. we'll stop now. <laughs> or we'll go all for right. two hours. And we'll do this again soon. Thank you okay. so much, Doctor. We'll do this again soon. And everybody have a great rest of the weekend. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.